I'd like to invite the rest of you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 1. As the little people follow the big people out those doors, we're going to look at Revelation 1. So if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to find Revelation 1. It's easy to find. It's at the very end of your Bible. And what we're going to focus on during our time together are three questions that are some of the most important questions you will ever hear because of the answers. Question number one, who is Jesus? Question number two, what does Jesus deserve? And question number three, what are His future plans? Who is Jesus? What does He deserve? And what are His future plans? Those three significant questions are answered in Revelation chapter 1 and verses 5 to 7. But to see the greater picture, let's go ahead and let's go ahead let, let's go ahead and read Revelation one, one to seven. If you'd follow along with me as I read God's holy word regarding Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that He saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. And on that Amen, let's pray so that we too can say Amen. Our gracious Heavenly Father, it is good to hear from You in Your Word. And it is good to hear about how great Christ is and even who Christ is. And as we read this letter that comes focusing on you, upon your spirit, and upon your Son, and as we focus specifically on your Son today, may He be glorified and may He be honored. May we as Christians be challenged to think appropriately about Christ and not trivially. And Lord, for those who are here who are not Christians... May they see Christ for who He says He is, for who He truly is, and not something else. May today make an impact on us, not merely as individuals. May today make an impact on us as a local church. For the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Simple questions, profound answers, and I can't wait to get into them this morning. We are going to have our attention riveted on Christ, who He is, what He's done. We're going to have our attention riveted on Christ, 
as to what he deserves, how we should respond to him, and also even what he says about what his future plans are. And as I alluded in my prayer, what we're trying to do is remind ourselves of who Christ is, ultimately. Interestingly enough, I hope you noticed when we read the Scripture together, this was originally written to seven churches. By way of application, this is a message for the church. And as uh, we could see if we're going to continue reading the book of Revelation, of these seven churches, there are different kinds of churches. Some of them are in need of seeing Christ so that they repent of their sinfulness. They need this vision of Christ so they have their actions corrected. Other churches addressed amongst these seven are churches that are being persecuted. They need to see this vision of Christ so that they can find encouragement. And still others are just being faithful and they need to be reminded about who Christ is and how really He is worthy of service and worthy of devotion. So no matter where we are in the midst of all of this as a church, no matter what, we need to be reminded of who Christ is over and over again and how we're supposed to respond to Him and what His future plans are. It's healthy for us and good for us and for us not only as individuals but for as a church as well. So I can't wait for us to contemplate once again Christ. Question number one, who is Christ? Well, the answer to this comes in verses 5 and 6 and there are, are There is truth statement after truth statement after truth statement, and we're going to look at them one at a time. Who is Christ? Well, let's look at verse 5 and take it a piece at a time to see the answer to that question. Truth statement number one, Jesus is the faithful witness, according to Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Jesus is the faithful witness. Now, that right there is... Good, and that sounds good because if he's faithful, uh, he's a true witness. He's not a deceptive witness. He's not an untrustworthy witness. But if we were to take the time to at least stop and to consider where this verbiage comes from, and I'll just at least mention it, we won't go there. It's borrowed from Psalm 89. Psalm 89 talks about how God has promised his people a king. He's promised them King David and and other kings who will come in the line of King David. And it's talking about what theologians call the Davidic covenant, the agreement, the promise that God made with David that he would be uh, the the king. And not only would, would, would he be the king, but we would also have Israel with kings that would come after David. But then ultimately, because none of them would be perfect, there would be the ultimate David. There would be Jesus Christ the Lord. That promise comes in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Davidic promise, the promise that there would be a ruler over Israel. And not only that, eventually he would rule over the whole world. And this is why Christ comes in the line of David. Remember Matthew chapter 1? Well, it's the statement here that he is the faithful witness is borrowed from Psalm 89. And what's interesting about Psalm 89 is the witness to God's promise to provide a king for his people in Psalm 89 is creation. It's the sun. It's the moon. It's what we might call general revelation. As sure as the sun is real, as sure as the moon is real, as sure as creation is real and we can all see it, God is going to keep His promises to His people. So the faithful witness, if you will, in Psalm 89 is general revelation, creation, 
And here it's ratcheted up 10 million times because the faithful witness here is not general revelation for all to see. It's what we call special revelation. It's Christ. How can we know God's promise to His people to provide a king who would come in the line of David who would rule perfectly one day over the whole world? How can we know that that's really true? God says, I have a witness to substantiate my promise. His name is Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Better than the sun, better than the moon, better than anything else. He's the faithful witness. It's a good image borrowed from that psalm. How can we know the things in the book of Revelation are actually going to happen? God says, I have a faithful witness. It's Jesus, the faithful witness witness the true one the truth teller that's who christ is it's no wonder he's called the truth it's good good for us to be reminded of well there's another truth statement about answering this question who is jesus and that's also in verse five looking at the next component jesus is the firstborn of the dead so here we we have what we no, as Christians, is obvious, we have bodily resurrection. We have Jesus being set apart from all other religious leaders of every other movement. He's different from any guru. He's different from any other kind of religious teacher. He is, as the testimony here says, the firstborn of the dead. He's not a pseudo-king. He's not a pseudo-savior. He defeated sin and death. And here he is, the firstborn of the dead. The victor, the one who has power over death. That's who Christ is. But it actually means something more than that. Not less than that. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely foundational for us as Christians. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if it's not true, then we of all people are most to be pitied. We're a bunch of idiots. Christianity doesn't make any sense. So it's not less than that, but you know what? When it says here in Revelation 1.5, He's the firstborn of the dead, it's talking about something even in addition to having Him just raised from the dead. When it says firstborn, it's talking about Christ as the preeminent one who's been raised from the dead. The number one one, if you will, who's been raised from the dead. The Greek word uh, is this word prototokos. Prototokos, where we might eventually get our English word uh, related to uh, prototype. Christ is the prototokos. The idea is the preeminent one who's been raised from the dead. Remember, Jesus was not the first one chronologically to ever been raised from the dead. In the Old Testament, for example, 1 Kings 17, 2 Kings 4, 2 Kings 13... Or how about Jesus himself raising people from the dead before he was raised from the dead? Matthew chapter 9, Luke chapter 7, John chapter 11. The point is, with this prototokos idea, he is the preeminent one who's been raised from the dead. No one else could even be raised from the dead if it weren't for him. This is why, and you can just write this down, we won't take the time to go there. This is why Colossians 1.18 really interprets Revelation 1.5 for us. It's the kind of verse you write in your margin. Listen to this, talking about Christ in Colossians 1.18. He is the firstborn from the dead that in everything He might be preeminent. 
He is the preeminent resurrected one. He is number one. He is central. He is supreme. He has center stage in everything in God's plan. Who is Jesus? Firstborn from the dead. Prototokos. The preeminent one. I don't know about you, but as a Christian, this just stirs my heart. And I, I want to worship Him if He is the prototokos, if He is the preeminent one. This, this changes everything. We're not talking about some religious leader, merely speaking. He's the supreme one. Hebrews 1.6 says, And again, when He, God the Father, brings the firstborn into the world, He says, Let all the angels worship Him. Angels? Angels are above us. And he says, even those angels who are above human beings worship the prototokos one. That's who Christ is. We need to be reminded of who, who Christ is. It affects our decision-making as individuals. It affects our decision-making as, as a church. It affects everything. Here we are week in and week out talking about the Bible. We're talking about what, what we're supposed to do, what we're not supposed to do. We're talking about trusting in Christ and, and all of these significant and important things. But we, we, we dare not forget, who are we talking about here? We're talking about the preeminent one, who even angels worship. How great is this? Well, it gets, it doesn't, it doesn't stop there. I almost said it gets better, but that wouldn't be right, right? Let's see, also in verse 5, the, the next truth statement answering the question, who is Jesus? Jesus, in verse 5, is the ruler of the kings on earth. The ruler of the kings on earth. Still taken from Psalm 89 and, and reaching back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and the Davidic promise, the Davidic covenant. He is the ruler of the kings on earth. Well, right now, Jesus is in here. In, in, in the sense that this means it, I think, I, I don't think he's suggesting that this is actually happening right here and right now in the Davidic covenant sense. Because the kings on the earth aren't showing submission to him. We're talking about a prophetic book that is going to look into the future, but before it even launches into the future, it's telling us who Christ is. And since the plan has already been laid out and established, the story has already been written, so to speak, he can call Christ, even though it hasn't happened yet, the, as it says, ruler of the kings on earth. This is strong, sure, final. And again, if we were to reach back into that promise that God made to the nation of Israel to provide leadership not only uh, over Israel as a king through David, but eventually over the whole world, this fits that. Jesus, the Jesus we gather today to worship, the Jesus we gather today to honor, in whose name we pray, in whose blood we trust, if you will, the Bible says here, is ruler of the kings of the earth. Let's go ahead and take a glimpse into the future and see what that's going to look like when it actually happens. Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation 19.16. You just turn to almost the very end of the book of Revelation. We, we see what this will look like when it actually happens. That is who Jesus is, but it has, hasn't actually been executed, if you will. In Revelation 19.16, we see what it is going to look like, and it's rather amazing. This will be the fulfillment of God's promise to David way back in the Old Testament. 
In Revelation 19.16, it says, On his robe, speaking of Jesus, and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. We're learning who he is, and then we see it actually taking place and manifesting itself and becoming a reality because he will come, and as he comes, he is titled King of kings. How do you get higher than a king? You don't get higher than a king unless you're the king of kings, capital K, and you're the Lord of lords, capital L. That's who Christ is. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our life. He's the preeminent one. I've said it probably many times, but I'll say it again so we understand the point. Democracy is highly overrated. Okay? It is. I mean, in a fallen world, it seems like the best option. I'm all for it. Let's promote democracy in this world that we live in. Okay, great. But lest we think somehow it's the end all, it's somehow God's form of government, let's wake up and remember who Christ is. Right? He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. There is a day coming where there will be perfect government and it's called a theocratic monarchy. Right? God ruling alone. No more politics. Hallelujah. Right? He's the faithful witness. No, no more politicking. No more manipulation. No more lying. He's the king, the preeminent one, and he will rule perfectly all the time. That's why I'm here today to worship him with other fellow Jesus worshipers. Because that's who he is. And once again, we have decisions to make in the here and now, let's say as a local church. We have to decide, are we going to do what Jesus says? Or are we going to do what we think might attract a bigger crowd? Or whatever it is. Remember who Jesus is. Remember that the seven churches, some of them were dealing with those kinds of real life issues. And Jesus, through John, really the Trinity through John, according to those opening verses, is saying, churches... Remember who He is. I mean, just think about it logically for a second. If He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, it makes absolutely no sense. And you would confess that as Christians. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever for you in the here and now not to do what He says. That's just crazy. So it's so good for us to to, to remember who, who is Jesus. And it becomes exceedingly practical. And in our lives as well. He is Christ the Lord, worthy of our praise, worthy of our worship. And now it gets personal in verse 5. The next truth statement, still answering the question, who is Jesus? In verse 5 of Revelation 1, Jesus is the one who loves us. I think there's a contrast meant to be seen there. King of kings, Lord of lords, strong, powerful, not democratic. Who loves us? It's great. I don't know exactly you know, how somebody can be that unless they're God or something. Just kind of the point. 
He is that strong ruler who rules with a rod of iron, Psalm 2 says, who loves us. I even like it that it says loves. It doesn't say love who loved us. The Bible teaches that, who loved us and gave himself for us. That's true. But here it says who loves us. I love that. I love that. I love him. Who loves us? It's true that there's a sense in which God loves everyone. It wouldn't make any sense for Him to tell us to love our enemies if He Himself didn't love His enemies, in a sense, at a certain level, right? He shows mercy. He shows compassion. He's long-suffering. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, these acts of love and mercy. But I don't think it's talking about that here. I think here it's talking about a very particular kind of love. Who loves us? Chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that this was written to his servants. He loves us. He loves us in a unique and special way. He loves us in a particular way. Jesus loves me. This I know, (laughs) right? For the Bible tells me so. Don't leave that in the realm of flannel graphs, okay? We should teach that on flannel graphs with the kids, but this is speaking here to adults. Jesus loves us if we belong to Him. This is great. Personal, compassionate, caring. Jesus loves us. And then you start looking at passages like Romans 8.35, which we'll get to eventually on Sunday mornings. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. It's that kind of love. Or how about Ephesians 3.19? This is a love that is so awesome that it surpasses knowledge. I'm so glad the Bible says that. Because my thinking is, how can He be King of kings and Lord of lords and love us? You know? I mean, if you really start thinking about King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and you see the, 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 the strength of that and the power of that and, and what that means even in light of the Old Testament, and He loves us. My mind is going, you know? Yeah, this surpasses knowledge. I just know it's true and I'm glad. And I'm so glad the Bible says it surpasses knowledge. It's more than Pat can get his pea brain around, but it doesn't mean it's not true and I don't love the fact that he loves me. And now we see his greatest act of love in verse 5 as well. Another truth statement about him. Jesus is the one who, look at verse 5 and see the quotation there. Jesus is the one who has freed us from our sins by his blood. Talk about love. Now, now, now we're getting the picture, right? He has freed us. How has He freed us? Well, what has He freed us from? He freed, he has freed us from our sins, and He's done so by His blood. He's talking about atonement, right? Blood, meaning the shedding of blood, the giving of His life, and He has freed us from our sins. Think about this. We don't deserve to be freed from our sins, Right? While we were yet sinners, Romans says, Christ died for us. This, this, this Jesus is, is absolutely 
amazing when you consider what he's done. While we were sinners, while we were giving him the spiritual finger is what's happening, right? Enemies. While all of this hostility is happening between us and Christ, he comes for us to redeem us and to free us from our sins by shedding his own blood. Think about it in these terms. What's fair is we've committed cosmic treason against the God of the, of the world. What should be happening, in one sense, what should be happening if we get what we deserve, is God should be sending His Son to execute judgment upon us. That's what should be happening. And instead, because He's not only just, He's also a loving God, He sends His Son here to be executed for us. To give His blood for us. The just for the unjust, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5. And now all of a sudden, like never before, being reminded of these things that I know we know, but we need to be reminded of if we're going to act the way we need to act like a church. I'm saying Jesus Christ is absolutely, staggeringly amazing. He's so good. That's who Christ is. Christ is the one who has freed us from our sins by His blood. There's substitutionary atonement right there. There's the exchange. And this is true of you. If you're a believer, if you've trusted in Him and Him alone, you claim that promise, if you will, based upon the work of Christ as your own. Pardon me while I have a little worship service by myself. I'm actually having one while I preach. I hope you're having one while you listen. Now we move to verse 6 and we see a couple more truth statements about Christ still answering the question, who is Christ who addresses the seven churches? Verse 6, we learn Jesus has made us a kingdom. Jesus has made us a kingdom. Has made. Now wait a minute. We look ahead to the book of Revelation and this kingdom that's the fulfillment of this Davidic promise actually hasn't happened yet. Where we're ruling and reigning with Christ. He hasn't returned yet. But again, he speaks in these concrete, absolute terms for us to see. We're talking about this is not, it might happen. This is going to happen based upon the person of Christ. And so he says has made us a kingdom. It's sure. It's absolute. It's fixed. We could look at Revelation chapter 5 and get a little bit of a better idea of of, of what this is about and what it's looking for. So go ahead and turn to Revelation 5 and get a little bit more in on this. He has made us a kingdom. And as you're turning to to Revelation 5, think about it for a second. He gave His blood to pay for our sins. And the very ones who are sinners, He makes a kingdom. Ah, He does love us. (laughs) Indeed, He does. Because that otherwise wouldn't make sense. Revelation 5.10 says, And you have made them, referring to the redeemed, a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's what it means to be a kingdom. It means to be reigning. We will reign with Christ in the days ahead because of who He is. Has made us a kingdom. 
the, I mean, the closest I've ever gotten to royalty, you know, is standing behind the, the bars looking into Buckingham Palace, you know, like this, thinking, why am I standing here freezing? And why do I care about this so much? Well, it's because it's Buckingham Palace. And? Anyway. <laughs> it's just kind of a weird idea when you think about it. Well, that, that's the closest I've ever gotten to royalty. And here the Bible says, based upon the work of Christ and His love for us, He has made us, the redeemed, a kingdom. We're going to rule and reign with Him. Maybe that's why I don't care so much about Buckingham Palace. You ain't seen nothing, you know? Big whoop. <laughs> Has made us a kingdom. Ruling with the King of the universe. King of kings and Lord of lords. One more truth statement answering the question, who is Christ? And it's also in verse 6. Jesus has made us to be priests to His God and Father. And I don't know about you, but when I read that in one sense, just trying to turn my Bible brain off for a second and think about living in Omaha, Nebraska and having that be my only point of reference and hearing this, I say, say what? Priests? I stand before you as a priest. I don't even have my collar on backward, right? That's how I think. I eat, I eat red meat on Fridays, even in the springtime, you know? I'm married. Well, throw away all of your unbiblical cultural baggage and just think in biblical terms. Who were the priests in the Old Testament? The priests were the ones who had access to God. Right? They made sacrifices on behalf of the people and they had access to God. The emphasis being on having access to God because we learn Christ is the one who has rescued us from our sins by shedding His blood so we don't have need for atonement anymore. We don't have need for sacrifice anymore. We have Christ as our high priest. And nevertheless, we are called priests, no doubt, because there's only one, one thing left. If He is the atonement part of it, the one thing left is we have access to God. We go to God. We, 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 we don't need to go through anyone. We, we just go to Him. Jesus Christ has made us to be priests to His God and Father through His atoning work, no doubt. This is absolutely amazing. I have access to God. And when you stop and think, again, even in this passage... His blood pays for our sins. You know what? That right there should give you a big hint that it's pretty radical for you to have access to God. You know? You have sins. I have had many. <laughs> I have access to God. It just keeps pointing, 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 pointing to the greatness of Christ. We're priests. We go to God because of the high priest. Now, I realize at this point in time, I hope by now, you know, in, in your secret little Baptist heart of hearts, you know, you're wanting to say the word, right? If not, may God have mercy on your sin-sick and shriveled-up soul, right? You're wanting to say amen, right? It's coming, okay? And it's modeled for us not even by a Baptist, not John the Baptist, but John the Apostle. 
He learned a thing or two from John the Baptist, apparently. And uh, we're getting there, and I can't wait for us to get there, all joking aside. Second important question. What does he deserve? How should we respond to him? Well, obvious. It's already been obvious. But the answer is simple. Also in verse 6, look there with me. To him, the one we've been learning about, the one we've been seeing who is so great, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That was so lame. Let's read it again. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Yeah, you might even be saved. I don't know. (laughs) John is saying, yeah. And what's interesting about the word amen, it can actually even be saying, I give approval. Which could be taken totally the wrong way, as if God needs the approval of John. But, But it could also be taken the right way. Obviously, it should be taken that way. He's saying, so let it be. This is good. This is right. And you know what? I couldn't agree more. Amen. Yeah. It's the cry of his heart. That should be the cry of our heart as believers. Give Jesus glory. Give Jesus center stage. Give Jesus weight is the literal idea of glory. Give him substance. You have an argument for something and you say, I'm going to put a lot of weight on that argument. You're giving it a lot of emphasis, right? Jesus is to have the glory. He's to get all of the weight. He's to get all of the the focus, all of the light. He's to have the limelight. He's to have center stage in absolutely everything because of who he is. And dominion, power, strength. You can read about this in the book of Revelation Chapter 5, verse 13 says, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And then it's the amen to that. Isn't it good? Doesn't it seem right? That's who Christ is. Yeah, indeed. He is to have the glory and He is to have the honor. He is to have first place because He is the prototokos. He is the preeminent one. Wise people agree with what He says about Himself. I don't want to stop. I just want to keep talking about this. Let's talk about what his future plans are. Sort of abruptly, in verse 7, we have a shift. Praise, worship, because of who he is, right? It's intense. It's going, going, going. Give him glory. Give him dominion, honor. And then, with an abruptness, he says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds. That is from heaven, no doubt. Don't forget this. This great one who's to get all the glory and all the dominion and all the honor. Guess what? He's coming. He's returning. He's coming again. And once again, this this could mean different things to different people. And I'm not talking about subjectivism. Okay? I'm not having a postmodern moment. 
This could mean different things to different people, not meaning but implication, application. So if you are a church like some of those listed in the seven churches and you're compromising and you're living in sin, behold, He's coming! And you know who He is! Or you're going through the ringer getting persecuted for being faithful to Him. Behold, He's coming! Right? In other words, no no matter what your situation is, you need to remember Jesus. This Jesus we've been talking about is coming again for comfort, for affliction. Do the right thing. Remember who He is and act for His glory and for His honor. This is what we want to do. This is what we want to do as believers. He came the first time, soft, didn't say a whole lot until he got older. It's going to be different next time. Look at verse 7 again where it says, and every eye will see him. That tells us it's not a localized event as some theologians would want to suggest. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. somewhat of an interpretive issue. Let's stop and talk about that just momentarily. Every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. Well, it doesn't seem to be referring to the actual Roman executioners. They're since gone. God could arrange it so they would be there, but it doesn't seem to be that. It doesn't seem to be the actual Jews who who cried out, crucify Him, like Peter addresses in Acts chapter 2. Who are these? Well, we won't take the time to go there, but it would seem to be a fulfillment of Zechariah 12, 10 and following. And it's referring to Jewish people. The Jews who rejected Him as the King of David will one day see that He was the right guy and they got it wrong. They pierced Him. I think that is the most reasonable and Bible scholars would support that. They're responsible and they will see what they've done and they'll see it like they've never seen it before. But not only the Jews will see Him one day when He returns. Keep reading in verse 7. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. So one day everyone will see, whether they're Jew or Gentile, they will see that He was in fact who He said He was. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises as well as the New Testament ones. He is the right one. He is the Messiah. He is the King. He is the one who's worthy of worship. One day when He returns, everyone will know it. There's some question whether or not this reference in chapter 7 is talking about repentance at the end there because there will be massive Gentile repentance during the tribulation according to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and verse 14. So theologically that's true. Or is this wailing in reference to the many, many unbelievers who still reject? That seems to be what's being emphasized. And when you read verse 7 again, it seems to be the flavor of the verse. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. 
They will see Him for who He is, but it won't be pleasure-filled. It won't be a repentance kind of, uh, of crying. It will be one of grief and anguish. And we do know this does happen later on when Christ returns. Revelation chapter 6. Look at Revelation 6 and get a glimpse of what the unbelievers are going to do when Christ returns. Not all of them, because Revelation chapter 7 talks about many, many of them repenting, many, many of them believing, but there will be a massive group of people who even though now they know He was the one, their hearts are not changed, they continue, they continue to reject Him. Chapter 6, verse 15 says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and and, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. and, and, And who can stand? Isn't it interesting? It says the Lamb in the end of verse 16. And then it talks about the great day of their wrath. Even in verse 16, the wrath of the Lamb. This is very much uh, like what's spoken of in Psalm 2. Yes, He is where you find shelter. Believe and repent. But if you don't, He is the very same One who gives judgment to the point where the unbelievers are going to say, Kill us! Mountains, fall on us. We, 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 we don't want to worship Him, but we don't want to face the wrath of the Lamb. It's just an unregenerate heart. Pretty intense. I remember seeing a bumper sticker one time that said, Jesus is coming again, and boy is He expletive. Synonym for mad. And I saw it and I thought, I'm going to cut that guy off, you know. That's kind of a punk statement. That's not right. Then I thought more about it. And I actually thought, you know what? It's right. Jesus is coming again and boy is he blank. It's true. The wrath of the Lamb You say, that doesn't seem like very good news. Well, we've talked about the good news, right? The blood of the Lamb. Getting rid of sin, atonement. But for those who don't cling to the Lamb, those who don't kiss the Son, Psalm 2, and worship Him, the very same Son is the one who has the rod of iron smashing. And it's not wrong. It's actually right. Because it's justice. And God through the Son is giving people then what they deserve. We don't want what we deserve. We want mercy. We want grace. So we believe in Christ. But make no mistake about it. This Jesus, who is great, who is worthy of worship, is coming again. And there will be hell to pay. A letter written to churches so that churches might act the right way. Isn't it interesting at the end of verse 7, even after that strong statement, about wailing, the Apostle John says, by the grace of God, 
even so. Amen. A sanctified mind, if you will, a regenerate mind, a Christian mind, says to even those harsh things, even so, amen. I have to say I agree. Because God is going to fulfill His promise to have His Son be the fulfillment of the promise made to David to rule over the nations of the earth. And all of these wrong things that we see on CNN and Fox and everything else that you might watch need to be fixed. And democracy isn't going to do it. One day it's going to be fixed. Even so, he says, Amen. And we should too. Trust in Christ. Believe in Him. And you'll be spared. Better than that, you'll be able to say, Who loves us? Right? Better than that to say, He made us a kingdom and priests, direct access to God. But where there is no repentance, there's justice. And some will mock that. Some will doubt that. Some will question that. But it's who Jesus is. And it's good for us to see who Jesus is. When we make decisions today... Tomorrow, the next day, in 10 years, as a church, about what to do, what not to do, when you make decisions, when I make decisions, what we need to keep going back to is Christ. Who is He? What does He deserve? And and, and what are His future plans? And all of a sudden, I'm motivated. Very motivated, very attentive. All because of His grace. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank You for this morning and thank You for this great opportunity that we have had to gather in the name of the Lamb. What a great and amazing and loving God You are to not give us, to not give everyone exactly what they deserve. Instead, You've chosen to show Your abundant love for us by sending Your Son to die in our place, having lived in our place and also to rise again from the dead. We love Him as Christians. And Lord, for those who loathe Him, we would just ask that You would be gracious and kind as You have been to the rest of us and open their eyes and bring about faith, bring about repentance so that they too could be reconciled and be believer priests. In Jesus' name.